Good morning, Cross Point. Has anyone at all been following March Madness? I, I'm not even a basketball fan, but my, one of my sons at home is an avid basketball fan, and there's a few basketball fans here on this church staff, so I jumped in. I'm watching. I don't really know who the teams are. I'm surprised that Purdue was good uh, for a little while. Princeton. Princeton is a sympathetic underdog one time a year when they make it to March Madness. And I don't know if you know this, Princeton, a very elite school filled primarily with privileged children who were given SAT help to get you know, the kinds of scores that are required to get into a school like Princeton, they're on a tear. And then I got tired of basketball, so I flipped over to an entirely different sport that I'm sure I'm the only American that watched yesterday. Did you know the college wrestling championships were held yesterday as well? And guess what? A kid from Princeton won the national title yesterday. His name is Pat Glory. And he sobbed his way all the way through the post-game, through the post-match interview. And he kept saying, we, we, we. There is no more individual sport than wrestling. It's you and the other savage across the mat from you. But Pat Glory, an unlikely national champion from an elite school, won the national title. And when he stood up, I was mesmerized because I came at the end of the match and it was very, very close. When he won, his opponent crumpled face down on the mat, looking for all intents and purposes as if he had been killed. Pat stood up and tears started streaming down his face and all the happiness and all the joy you could ever imagine were expressed on this young man's face as he sobbed his way through the interview and gave all the credit to his family, to the community of the college, to his coaches, and he just kept saying, we. And I've never heard of Pat Glory before in my life. I briefly tried to wrestle in, in junior high school in Amarillo, Texas, and decided after I met a kid who was fourth in the state of Texas that that was not the sport for me. <laughs> we made that decision, he and I together, as he showed me that there were levels to the game, and I was not on his level, and I was not meant to be a wrestler. He went on to wrestle for Nebraska, I went on to Bible college. But I was mesmerized and I felt tears welling up in my own eyes just watching this young man win. And then they cut back to his opponent, head down, utterly defeated. If you were in that story, which one would you like to be? Would you rather be the winner? America loves a winner. We all love to win. There's nothing better than winning. A friend of mine who coached at a very high level won five national titles in his sport in Division I. NCAA athletics said second place is first loser. That's the spirit of competition. That's the spirit of the United States in particular. Runner-up is also ran. Runner-up is could have been. The loser is left defeated, sobbing on the mat in disappointment and heartbreak. The winner gets all the attention. That carries over that innate desire to win, which is God-given, by the way. 
because God wins. That carries over into all of life. If you go into the Christian bookstore, you're going to find dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of titles telling you how to win. Never seen a title advising anybody how to be a loser. That seems to come more naturally, wouldn't you agree? Most of us don't need coaching. The passage I'm going to read to you is all about victory and triumph. But it may surprise you what Paul said, and you may struggle against his idea. In 2 Corinthians, we've been moving through 2 Corinthians for a few weeks now. We will spend several more weeks as we move through Paul's letter. What I've tried to show you is that Paul is writing yet another letter to a church he had brought the good news of Jesus to. And though he had done more for them than he perhaps had for any other group of Christians, they had repaid him the worst. They had betrayed him, they had criticized him, they had badmouthed him, they had slandered his character, they had sided with his slanderous opponents. And 2 Corinthians is a final appeal from Paul, in part expressing his relief that most of the church has come back to Jesus and come back to him. And he opens up his heart and shows them how brokenhearted he has been over their criticism. Though he doesn't very clearly doesn't want to, he lays down his credentials and opens, his, opens up his whole life for examination. So when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you'll open your Bibles there with me, please. Paul is going to talk about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, he's going to begin to talk about Still this little travelogue of what he's doing and where he's going. These are hard parts for us to understand about the letter. If you'll spend a few minutes after church looking in the map in the back of your Bible and understanding where these places are, it'll make much more sense to you. But the details aren't really as important as you understanding the flow of the story. What Paul is writing in this letter is he knows from his previous interactions with them, including a severe letter where he calls them back to Jesus, that a great faction in the church is opposed to him, and Paul says he can't get it off his mind. He can't even enjoy his success. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Three unfamiliar names drawn from the ancient world, two are places, one is a person, Troas and Macedonia are the places, Titus is the man. What you need to know is that Paul said, I kept going on the journey that I've been criticized for taking. And Jesus threw open a big door for me. This is a common way for Paul to talk about, I had all the ministry success I ever could have wanted. He's preaching Christ and things are going well. He's being blessed in an extraordinary way, but he can't find Titus, his co-worker, who's also involved in this rescue and restoration project of trying to get this wayward, divisive, litigious, angry Corinthian church back to Jesus and back to Paul who told them about Jesus in the first place. So what those two verses that I just read mean are very simple. Even though Jesus was blessing in tremendous ways and I was enjoying the ministry success, I had no peace there. I didn't know where Titus was, and the backstory story is, I didn't know how you were doing. 
Have you ever had things going so well in your personal life, in your professional life, rather your career is really, really going well, but you have a heartbreak with a friend or a family member and the whole thing is just shadowed? Anybody ever had that experience? That's Paul. Paul is saying, I think it would be fair to say that Paul here is being pushed into depression. He's under constant pressure. He refers in, the, in, in his Corinthian letters also to his anxiety. And then in 14, 14 through 17 is all I want to share with you. It takes a turn and Paul begins to talk about triumph and winning and winning on a grand scale, in fact, the kind of winning that creates a parade. You ever had anybody throw a parade for you because you won something so big? <laughs> Me neither. But we do, don't we? If you watched the Super Bowl this year, as soon as the champion was crowned, the winning city started making preparations. Where are we going to have the parade? And tens of thousands of otherwise responsible adults called in sick, took the day off work, got their kids out of school, showed up on the streets of Kansas City or Dallas or Philadelphia, well, not Dallas, uh, somewhere in America <laughs> to celebrate, and I'm a Cowboys fan, forgive me, I, I just, out of instinct and hope, try to mix the Dallas Cowboys in there on the side of winning sometimes. American cities plan victory parades and the athletes ride in the highest car, and they're surrounded by people, and people throw confetti. I can't even imagine what the security and the cleanup costs. That's how much we love winning. Paul says, in spite of all my troubles, in spite of all the trouble you've been giving me, in spite of all the pressure and the anxiety of all the churches and of your your terrible behavior, he says in verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. What does that mean? That's a victory parade, but for you to understand the full meaning and to really wrestle with this text, and I promise if you understand it, if I'm able to explain it to you well enough and God helps you understand what Paul's talking about here, you'll struggle with this text. Paul says, in spite of all of your backbiting, in spite of all of our heartbreak, in spite of all the arguing and the slandering and the letters that have gone back and forth and the people that have sent you and the painful visits I've made to you, all that is in the last few weeks of our series here. I am confident in this. Verse 14. I give thanks to God, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Paul is talking here about the victorious Christian life, but I'd like to suggest to you that the victorious Christian life may not be what you expect. Not everything in the bookstore that is telling you how to win in one dimension of your life or another may reflect and do justice to what Paul is talking about here. You see, when Paul says triumphal procession, this is the English standard version of the Bible. It's very literal, sticks very close to the original language of the New Testament, which was Greek. 
Paul's using a, a technical term, if you will. He's talking about something that would have been very familiar to his hearers, but we probably have never even heard of. Paul's writing in the days of the Roman Empire. Rome rules the world. They rule through their armies. They rule through their wealth. They rule through their roads. They have colonized all of the known world. Practically everything that is known to them belongs to them. And they did this through the constant threat of military might. Rome is studied to this day because even some 2,000 years later, people find the Roman Empire fascinating. They subdued all kinds of different ethnic groups and languages and cultures and religious practices. They did that primarily by allowing a great deal of latitude and even religious freedom. So long as you didn't oppose Rome, all would be well. You could keep your customs, you could have your religion, you could have your family, pay your taxes, be a good citizen, and all will be well. But behind that Roman peace, as historians have called it, always stood the iron fist of an army that is still studied and still legendary in military tactics to this day that completely revolutionized warfare to the point that they were, it was not a matter of whether Rome was going to win, but how gracious they were going to be in defeat. And when a Roman general had a particularly notable victory, they would give him a, what Paul calls here, a triumphal procession, a Roman triumph. What did that look like? Well, it's a victory parade, but depending on where you, what your relationship was in it, you may not want to be part of it. The general would be in a chariot drawn by as many as four horses, and really notable occasions, they might bring elephants out to carry, to drag the Romans, the general's chariot ahead of him. All around him would be priests offering incense, so a fragrance filled the city. And ahead of him, and this is very important for you to understand Paul's meaning, was a giant part of the parade, which were men on parade. Other kings, other generals, men of importance, all of them walking on foot in front of the general as he traveled, glides along on his carriage, all of them, don't miss this, conquered. If we did this in modern times, if we did this during the Revolutionary War, General Washington would have been in a proud chariot wearing all the regalia that the colonies could have afforded him while the British generals marched in front of him. And at the end of the parade, can you guess what might have happened to the conquered generals and notable men who were walking in front of the, in front of the general? They were killed. The Roman gods were honored, and the final victory of the general was sealed by the death of his enemies. And all of this was done in public with a massive cheering crowd, and it had profound found meaning in a place like Rome because the general said, see these men marching in front of me? They wanted you dead, but I won. 
So we're going to kill them instead because we won. That's what Paul has in mind when he says in verse 14, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. There's actually a scholarly debate of where Paul sees himself in the parade. Here's the countercultural question. Here's the part you may not like. The victorious Christian life, according to Paul, who knew more about winning in Jesus than any one of us, who had from his deep knowledge of Jesus, proven by his extraordinary spiritual experience and fruitfulness, has the absolute right to tell us in the Word of God, under the inspiration of God, to tell us what winning looks like for a Christian. The first thing, the countercultural thing that Paul tells us is that the victorious Christian life first looks like this. You are one who is conquered by God, not ruled by self. That's really the Christian life in a nutshell. Paul says, I am in Christ's triumphal procession, but not because I've won, but because he did. I want you to hear his testimony. This is one time that he gave it. My favorite, Acts chapter 26. Paul is speaking as a captive to someone in, Roman, in the Roman Empire and authority over him, and he says this, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who's talking to him? This is Jesus. Paul thought Jesus and every Christian was a terrible hoax and an imposter. Paul thought the resurrection of Jesus was a terrible lie foisted upon his people as driving the Jews even further from God than they already were. Paul had set himself to the task as the most zealous religious Pharisee of his day to exterminating the name of Christ by imprisoning and helping put to death people who believe Jesus. And all of that changed in this moment when Paul falls to the ground, hears a voice speaking to him in Hebrew and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Get this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what in the world does that mean? See, one of the interesting things about the Bible and the reason I tell you to slow down and to look it up or send me an email or send me a text if you don't understand what you're reading is it was written a long time ago in a culture that are not our own. What Jesus said to Paul as Paul cowered on the Damascus road because that's where he was going on his way to persecute more Christians is vitally important. A goad was a sharp stick that was used by an ox cart driver to make the animals move when they didn't want to. And Jesus is saying, Paul, if you keep fighting against me, all you're going to do is hurt yourself. You can't win, Paul. Here's Paul's answer, verse 15. Would you read that with me, please? Paul said, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See the turnaround? See, the victorious Christian life means that Jesus wins, not that you do. 
One of the reasons we feel perpetually heartbroken, perpetually stressed, perpetually anxious, perpetually at fear is because we think we have to win. The announcement of the gospel is that Jesus already has and that people who follow Jesus are conquered by God. Let God win. Give God His rightful victory rather than fight for control and direction of their own lives. See, that's really what it gets down to. Are you going to win or is Jesus going to win over you? Are you going to be conquered by God or are you going to be ruled by self? Here's a fog-cutting question that may help you. What is it that you love and trust most? The honest answer for most people in the world would be money. Most people think if they can only get enough money, all will be well. Now we're talking about other people. We don't have to think about us right now. Is that true? Will money fix it all? No, because money will eventually be taken from all of us. These Roman generals, these Roman emperors, in all their pomp and circumstance are dusty names in history. Relics. Who are now seen to be the worst of them. Pathetic small men who amass glory, wealth, and honor for themselves, but were taken down by the passage of time like every mortal human being always is. Paul, for religious reasons, was absolutely convinced that he had to fight against the lie of Jesus until he met Jesus for himself. And when Paul experienced the personal presence and the power of Christ on the Damascus road, he asked the wisest question, who are you, Lord? He immediately puts whoever this is in charge, and when he gets the answer, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, Paul never got over it. And people who truly surrender to God never get over it. That's the main thing I want you to hear. People who truly and genuinely stop ruling themselves and put Jesus in charge as ruler, leader, boss, master. That's why we're called disciples. We're learners. We're apprentices. We're followers of him. We never get over it. Here's how Paul expressed it in another one of his letters. This verse is so well known. I'd like you to read it with me. Some of you may know it by heart. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Will you read this with me, please? Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live a faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pause here for just a moment. What was, a what was the crucifixion used for? What was the purpose of crucifying someone in the Roman Empire? Was it torture? No. It was a torturous death. Fatality rate on a Roman cross, 100%. No one ever survived it. I want you to listen to Paul express his daily life. I have been crucified with Christ. Christ died on a Roman cross. 
Paul knew his death was real. He thought his resurrection was a hoax. He found out different on the Damascus Road. And years later, he wrote this, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, I died with Jesus too. Just so we're clear on what he's talking about, he said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in other words, the life I now have in this mortal body, I live by faith, not by personal achievement, not by being good enough for God, not by impressing God, not by following all the religious rules well enough so that God will have to accept me. That's the claim and promise of every religion, including Paul's old religion. He says, I'm done with that. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In other words, by trusting the Son of God. And here's why you should let Jesus win. It says, who loved me and did what? Gave himself for me. You see, the reason God wants to put to death your own self-rule is to replace it with his own because he's so much better. No one has ever surrendered to God and been disappointed by the experience and the outcome. No matter what it costs them, people who surrender to God truly, really do begin to live what Paul describes as the victorious Christian life, the triumphal procession, the victory parade that is always on. Not because I'm in charge of because I'm winning, but because Jesus won. Here's how Jesus expressed it in case you think this is Paul's idea. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said this, He said to all, this is a universal invitation, a universal challenge, if anyone would come after me, let him deny, what's it say there? Himself and take up his own, take up his cross daily and follow me. The invitation to take up the cross of Christ, to come and die with Him so that you may truly live by the one who first loved you, that's the whole Christian life. So my question to you is, have you ever surrendered? It's 8 a.m. This is a hardcore crowd of Christians. I understand that. Not many people who are trying to figure God out come, decide to come at 8 a.m. if there's two other services at 9.30 and 11. But I just have to ask, have you really surrendered to Christ? See, the boss or an accessory? See, you can't take him on as an assistant. That's what so many of the books in the bookstore are subtly inviting you to do. You go live your awesome life. Jesus can help. No, no. Jesus is Lord. Amen. There can only be one. Just like that wrestling mat, there's a clear winner and a clear loser, and you can tell at a glance who won. Christ really is Lord. He is that. He's earned that. He conquered death. He faced every temptation in your place and laid down your life so that you could have His righteousness instead of your sinfulness. So that you could replace His heart, your heart and mind with His own. This is why Paul never got over it and people who really surrender to Jesus never get over it and they put it in practice every day. So I'm really asking you two questions. Number one, have you ever surrendered? Have you ever said to Jesus, you win and I lose? 
you're in charge. I'm putting you in charge of my life. I'm giving you my sin. I'm asking you for your life to cover and be a substitute for mine. When you do that, he wins. But oh, my friends, so do you. You begin to experience life as God actually intended it. And the second question is, have you surrendered today? Because becoming a disciple of Jesus is a decisive moment when you turn away from your sin and turn to Christ and the continued Christian life is a daily subscription to putting Him in charge. A one-time payment that will cover all your sins that you rest on daily. That's where the victorious Christian life starts when God conquers rather than you ruling yourself. But that's not all that Paul said. Look in verse 15. But thanks be to God, I'm reading in verse 14, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. What does that mean? Well, that's another cultural reference. Along with this victorious general and these conquered formerly mighty men, there were also priests in the procession offering incense. They were burning incense, flowers were being strewn about, all kinds of rich, sumptuous fragrances covered the parade route and wafted over the city. That means that if you were a stranger to a Roman city where a triumphal procession was being held as soon as you crossed the city gates, you would be able to smell it. And you would know, even if you couldn't see the people yet, that Rome must have won another great victory. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him, in other words, of Christ, the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Paul's going to expand this metaphor. Don't miss this. Verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Let me invite you back to the parade route. Incense is being offered. Flowers may be crushed underfoot. This is a fragrant, notable place. Have you ever noticed how invasive smells are? Good and bad? How many of you love the smell of coffee even if you don't like coffee? Isn't that the most incredible thing? Oh, it smells great. You want some? Absolutely not. <laughs> Starbucks depends upon that smell. I'm not theorizing. I read the CEO's book. He depends on the aroma of continually fresh brewed coffee to drive sales. For a while, they set aside one of their best-selling products because they were making sandwiches, but they couldn't figure out how to warm the sandwich without burning the cheese. So for a while, they stopped making money on the sandwiches because the aroma of coffee was so important to the company. They wanted you, when you walk into their coffee stores, to be enveloped by the fragrance. That's what's happening on the Roman parade route. But I don't know if you've noticed, Paul says everybody is getting the aroma coming from our lives. Verse 15, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. What does he mean by this? He means simply this. That fragrance to a Roman citizen meant victory. As soon as you smelled it, even before you saw the parade, if you're just arriving in the city, that means we won. We're safe. They wanted us dead, but our army has kept us safe yet again. The sons and husbands who left our homes have come back victorious, and we will sleep peacefully again tonight. But what does that smell like to you if you're in the parade? That smells like death. And the conquered general walking in front of the Romans, chief general, thinks to himself, the last thing I will smell will be this incense. What does Paul have to, why does he bring this in? Because he says that the victorious Christian life is one wherein we make Christ known to others. In other words, your life, if it's truly lived for Jesus, if you're a public Christian, if you're not ashamed of your faith, if you don't mind others knowing what Christ has done for you, Your life gives off a fragrance. The fragrance of a life lived for Christ is unmistakable. But it's also divisive. Not everybody will like it. We live in divisive times. And listen, let me be exceedingly clear. You should never be a jerk for Jesus. There's too many of those. There's too many people who want to act like jerks and use Jesus as their excuse. No. Just love the way he loved. Serve the way he loved. Endure abuse if you have to take it the way he endured abuse. Give your life as an offering to God and in loving offering to others. If you live for Christ, that Fragrance will rise from your life, and it's going to be unmistakable. It's going to be smelled everywhere. Your life will make an impact. You will be noticed, and it will be divisive, but it always has been. So please, dear Christian, don't be ashamed of the Jesus who saved you. He's the hope of the world. He's the hope of people who don't believe in him. He's the hope for people like Paul once was who think he's a hoax, he's a myth, he's used to enrich people, some people, and control all the others. Paul knew all of those criticisms well, and he never stopped giving an unmistakable witness for Christ because the victorious Christian life is someone who is surrendered to Jesus, and Paul says, because I have been conquered by Jesus, because I've put him in charge, look in verse 14, Through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Everywhere we go, Paul says, people know we're Christians. Everywhere we go, they know about our Savior, even if they forget about us. No wonder Paul says at the end of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who who can handle this? This word picture is so big. It's literally life and death. It's life everlasting and judgment in one single picture. It's people deciding between living with God forever and choosing to rule themselves far away from God and dying instead. Paul says, I can't handle this. We're not enough for this. We're just ordinary people. 
then he says in verse 17, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That tells me that the third mark of a victorious Christian life is this, you sincerely live for God and not for yourself. That's the difference. Paul, as he, poor as he was, persecuted as he was, with many physical scars marking his body, with an appearance, physical appearance that Paul himself describes as contemptible, Paul continually had to answer the charge that he was in it for himself and in it to get rich. And he said, no, we're not peddling God's word. We're not profiteers. We're not trying to make money off of you. We're sincerely speaking for Christ. We're giving the message of Christ. We've been sent by God and we are in the sight of God. That's why we talk Jesus to you. I've rephrased 2 Corinthians 2 verse 17. Here's the heart of Paul's message. We speak sincerely in Christ as people sent from God who are standing in His presence. Please know this, church. Since I'm the senior pastor and I've got the Bible open and at least for a few minutes I get the mic and the lights are on me. This has never been about peddling God's Word. That's an offense to Christ that Christ will know how to deal with. The victorious Christian life is lived in willing, joyful surrender to the God who made you and gave you everything. It is lived in daily surrender to make other people know who He is. It is the kind of life that is lived openly and sincerely, not for the pursuit of self, but in surrender to Jesus. The victorious Christian life is lived in surrender to God so that others may know Him. And you may not be an apostle, and you may not even have a mic anywhere. I have a great sacred privilege that I take so seriously, and I'm so grateful for, to be able to open the Bible with you Sunday after Sunday. But if you're a, if you're a Christian, you also, like Paul, need to surrender to God, and you need to take account of the people in your world to whom you can give a witness of Jesus. If you're surrendered to Him, your purpose is then to live for Him so that others may know Him as you do. And who should that be in your life? Probably some members of your family at least, right? Might be your neighbors. Might be co-workers. Might be people in the other community and civic organizations that you're part of. Everywhere you go, you take the fragrance of Jesus with you. Make him known, enjoy a surrender to him, and live for him so that others will know him the way you do. That's what it means to live the victorious Christian life. Let's pray together. Oh, just one question, Christian. Are you surrendered? Did you start by giving your life to Christ and then lately have you been taking it back? If he's in charge, how would you prove it? 
What's part of your settled routine that shows that he's in charge, not you? See, the victory parade that Paul's describing is for Christ, not for us. We win, but only because he has already won. If you've been wrestling control back from Jesus, please understand that's a losing game. It'll be hard for you to kick against the goads. You won't win that one. You'll lose every time you fight him. Have you been making him known? Are you surrendered in a way that through your loving, your giving, your serving, your witnessing, other people know who Jesus is? You found more of yourself and less of him these days in your life. Can I give you a moment to pray and resurrender? Put him back in charge? If you haven't trusted him as Savior, friend, this is your invitation. I'm not on commission. That's not the interest. The interest is that you would know the real eternal life that Christ died to give you. His death was real. His resurrection was just as real. And it was for you. It was for your sake to give you eternal life. My invitation to you would be to surrender to him, to put him in charge. You don't need the right words in prayer. You just need an attitude of personal trust in Jesus. Tell him, I'm giving up on me. I'm trusting you. Please save me.